Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California's seven-day COVID positive test rate is at its highest since February, when we were emerging from the Omicron wave. And across the nation, COVID cases have more than tripled since April. With many pandemic mandates lifted and masks optional, though strongly recommended in California, how are you approaching the latest surge? UC San Francisco's Bob Wachter is here to talk about how his family is dealing with their latest bout of COVID and to take your questions about prevention and treatment. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This week marks the grim milestone of the U.S. surpassing a million deaths from COVID-19, though it's likely an undercount. 90,000 of those deaths are Californians. And again, we find ourselves in a surge. The state's COVID test positivity rate hit 5% for the first time since February, also believed to be an undercount given unreported home test results. But with more natural immunity, more vaccinated and boosted people, and new treatments available, where are we in the pandemic? How should we prevent infection or handle getting infected with COVID? Dr. Bob Wachter's wife tested positive earlier this month, and Dr. Wachter joins us to talk about that experience and to take your COVID questions. He's chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Bob Wachter, thanks so much for being with us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so sorry to hear your, I was so sorry to see your tweet, rather, that your wife, Katie Hafner, got COVID. How is she doing, if I, if you don't mind my asking? Well, obviously, if I minded you asking, I wouldn't (laughs) be so public about it. (laughs) To a quarter of a million people. Uh, Thank you. Uh, That's nice of you. She's okay. Uh, I, you know, with her permission, she, uh, she wanted to help people. And she said, if you think tweeting this out would be useful to folks and to see how my experience has gone. That's fine. And so I thought it was very charitable of her. She's about day 12 into it now, and she still feels pretty wiped out every afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's got a little bit of brain fog, and she's a journalist, so that's not great. But it's it's a little bit better each day. It's definitely not, you know, quote, just like a cold. I mean, this is this is it, it's still serious stuff, even close to two weeks out. What were the first steps you took when you both saw that Katie had tested positive? 
Well, part of the reason I wanted to talk about it was, you know, it's sort of the real life stuff that that happens where we were traveling, visiting elderly friends in Palm Springs. Uh, they're in their 80s. Uh, she had attended and, and, and taught at a writer's conference the week before. Uh, let her guard down a little bit, which she feels very guilty about. But I think everybody's, you know, making these kinds of choices two weeks in. She actually masked in the conference, but uh, they all ate meals together. Mm. And uh, she came and met me in Palm Springs. Uh, the day after getting there, she started feeling a little crummy. She tested the next morning. I heard her say, honey. And I said, oh my God, she's positive. And mm -hmm. she was. And then we had to figure out, all right, we're in Palm Springs. What do we do to get home? Do we fly? She's positive. That didn't seem right. So we ended up renting a car and driving nine hours to get back to San Francisco. Now she's positive. I'm not. So the windows are wide open uh, and going across some of the mountains is kind of cold. Uh, we're both wearing N95s. And um, that's how we got home. And then she started on Paxlovid, uh, the, the Pfizer oral medication, the antiviral, the next day. Um, but just that sort of thing, like, what do you do when you're away and traveling and you're positive and had, you know, what would we have done if she was, if we were on the East Coast, all those sort of things. Uh, you know, you don't really think very carefully about them until you're in that moment. And the other thing that we thought was important to, to get out there, I think it's quite natural to believe that if a family member gets it, and you've been hanging out with them, including the entire day Saturday and sleeping in the same bed Saturday night, it's absolutely definite that I have gotten it. Why even bother being careful? And that's not right. The answer, you know, the household attack rate, meaning one person in the household has it, where the chances others get it is somewhere probably around 40%, 35 to 40%. Oh, wow. Uh, and I'm, you know, fully vaccinated with two boosters. So I thought maybe a little lower, uh, but Omicron and the new variants are so infectious, maybe a little higher. So I thought maybe thought I had about a 50-50 chance of getting it, but it was definitely worth trying to be careful for the subsequent week. So not only the uh, that crazy uh, nine-hour drive, but uh, she remained in strict isolation in the house for the next week, and I did not get it. I've felt fine and have tested myself multiple times and I'm not getting it. So that's a good lesson that uh, obviously there's a significant chance that household contacts will get it, but it's not a done deal. Well, it sounds like your wife got it while traveling, though you are both from the Bay Area, and interestingly, the Bay Area is being uh, is showing up as a hotspot on CDC data, which is kind of ironic given the fact that the Bay Area was sort of a model for vaccination and prevention in the past. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing in this particular region of California and why it's a hotspot, you think? Yeah, well, let me sort of say something about her traveling. She didn't get it from traveling. She get it, got it from teaching in a conference and hanging out indoors with a bunch of other people not wearing masks, obviously, right. while they were eating. And so when we, when we think about the risk of various things, we tend to think about, well, she's going to be in Santa Fe, New Mexico. What's the risk there? Well, that almost irrelevant to what her risk was because people were coming in from all over the country. So they brought their risk with them. And in fact, there were 50 people who attended this writer's workshop with her. She was one of five instructors. There were 45 participants. 23 of them got it. So it was a true, so almost 50% of the people that, at that conference got it. So it was a true super spreader event. We still don't understand what, what that's about. Like, you know, the patient who actually, the person who brought it in and, and, and spread it to everybody else, what individual characteristics about them or their virus leads to that. That's, that's still a pretty big unknown. But I don't know that her doing this in Santa Fe was any riskier than it, had she done it in San Francisco. Uh, you know, so it's worth, as you think about sort of the risk of travel, 
you have to sort of factor in where is everybody coming from. In terms of San Francisco and why we're something of a hotspot, um, yeah, it is interesting. You know, for two years, we have been a poster child. I've written a lot about that. And I've been very proud of us. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have the highest vaccination rate in the, in the country among large cities. Uh, we have the lowest death rate. And in fact, if the United States overall had mirrored San Francisco's death rate, there would probably, at last time I calculated, probably about a quarter of the national average. So rather than a million people dead, there would probably be about 250,000 people dead. 750,000 people would be alive today mm. if the country had mirrored San Francisco's performance. Performance is partly some natural advantages. Uh, you know, it's, it's generally a somewhat healthier population than the national average, lower rate of obesity, lower rate of smoking. I think the vaccinations was a huge part of it. I think the fact that we uh, took to masking and really didn't push back very much on the public health recommendations all led to, uh, you know, a lot of people alive today that would not be in other places. Now, why is it going a little bit sour now? It turns out, you know, what they're seeing in China is uh, is probably comparable in a way that that having been very careful up till now, once you then let your guard down and people stop taking, you know, start wearing masks, the fact that we have fewer people who have been infected here is probably a little bit of a risk factor for infection, particularly in light of the new variants, the subvariants of Omicron that are far more infectious. So even though we're a very well vaccinated population, which is definitely protecting us from severe cases and hospitalizations and deaths, the, the, the protection you get from your vaccinations against any infection is lower than it was because this new variant is so infectious. So the combination of very few people here who have infection-related, or relatively few people who have infection-related immunity, the waning effect of vaccination for people that are not, particularly those who have not gotten boosters, uh, and the fact that more and more people are, are being less careful sort of understandably so, you go into the Safeway and you know probably two thirds of people have their masks off. Uh, that combination is leading to far more infections. And certainly I have heard, and I'm sure you've heard in the last couple of weeks, more people who have been safe and have not been infected for two years, just like my wife, who have gotten it than at any time I can think of in the last two, two and a half years. Yes, I feel like I'm surrounded by that story. And Hospitalizations are also ticking up, though. Do you think we need to go back to masking or that the state needs to look at a masking mandate again? You know, I think of mandates as different than what individuals should do. Yes. I, I think this far into the pandemic, the, uh, the threshold for a mandate uh, should be pretty high. It really, it, it, and, and uh, you know, obviously people can and will <laughs> disagree, some quite vehemently. Hmm. <laughs> but, but, you know, I believe that mandates are, are appropriate, but it should be a tool that is used carefully, partly because you want to be able to use them and have people say, okay, I agree. At times you absolutely need them. I think we have so many tools now for people to protect themselves, including including masking, including vaccinations and boosters uh, for, for immunocompromised people, including Evusheld, the monoclonal antibody, including Paxlovid, the antiviral. If you do get it, we have so many tools that I think people have the ability to keep themselves safe. And so I, I really do believe that the threshold for a mandate is higher than where we are now. The threshold for a mandate should be that hospitals are really filling up with COVID patients, that, that we have no way to get this under control without a mandate. That is very different than what a recommendation should be. I am not dining indoors at this point. I am wearing an N95 or KN94 
pretty much any time I'm in an indoor space that's going to be crowded. I just canceled our end of the year party for our residents who've worked their tails off for, for, for three years. I feel terrible about it, but that was going to be 300 people in an indoor space eating and drinking. And even if we'd done pre-event testing, I just didn't feel confident enough that we that you know, we wouldn't have a super spreader event. So I think those are recommendations. I'm That's the life I am living, being much more careful than I was a month ago. Uh, because there is a lot of COVID around, but has it reached the threshold for the government to say everybody must wear a mask? I personally don't think so, because I know that I can keep myself completely safe, even if the person sitting next to me on the bus or the airplane is is not wearing a mask. I can keep myself perfectly safe wearing an N95, being vaccinated and boosted. And I think at this point, most people know that, and most people even if, if they don't have means, have the opportunity to do those things. Well, I think you're starting to answer Catherine's question. Catherine asks, how well does my mask protect me when other people are not wearing masks, for instance, in a store or in a small gathering of three or four people? And let me just remind listeners, if you want to ask your questions of Dr. Walker, you can email them to forum at kqed.org, post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Dr. Walker in terms of how well Catherine's mask protects Catherine when, when among other people, not wearing masks. Yeah, Catherine, I, I guess I'd just say this to you as one bit of empiric evidence. You know, we as physicians have, and nurses have all been taking care of people who, not who might have COVID, but who do have COVID. We know they have COVID, they're in the hospital with it for now two years. And we wear N95s or the equivalent. And the number of cases of transmission through that mechanism, through a, someone with COVID giving it to someone who's wearing it a good mask, is it's not zero, but it's pretty darn close to zero. I mean, we see people who, get, when, when I have you know my colleagues who get it in the hospital, it's because we ate together and took our masks off. So that, that that's almost or that where we got it in the community. So we now know what sometimes called referred to as one-way masking. If you are wearing a good, well-fitting N95 or equivalent, you are very safe. You do it on an airplane, the person sitting next to you uh, is not wearing a mask with the ventilation and filtration on an airplane. I feel very safe. Maybe a little safer if they were masked, but, but I feel perfectly safe. Well, we'll have more with you after the break. Dr. Walker. stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's how we're closing out the week tomorrow. We're going to talk about Disneyland. It's a California institution and maybe more than just a theme park to a lot of people. 
with Disney World caught in a political divide in Florida, we want to know what does Disneyland mean to Californians? What thoughts, feelings, memories does Disneyland evoke for you? You can share them ahead of the show by leaving a voicemail at 415-553-3300 or by emailing forum at kqed.org. This hour, we're talking the latest COVID news and taking your questions with Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And we were talking masks just before the break. I want to ask one more question. Deborah writes, medical professionals often recommend N95s, but don't acknowledge that there doesn't seem to be a way for non-medical people to get fit tested. Is there a solution to this? And I guess I would add, how important is that, Dr. Wachter? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a good question. We, in general, in the hospital, are wearing uh, the sort of hospital grade N95s that have been fit tested. But if you wear an NKN94 or 95 that you can pick up in the store, uh, if there is a good seal along the outside, if it feels like it fits your face and there's not gaps uh, around it, that is doing a really, really good job of filtering out uh, uh, viral particles. So maybe, you know, I mean, if I was going to be two feet away of someone with someone I know has COVID, actually has COVID, I feel a little safer. And when I go into a room of a patient who I know has COVID wearing the fit tested N95, which is very uncomfortable. I mean, that wearing that, which has a strap around the back of your head yeah. for eight hours a day is not that much fun. When I'm going to see other patients in the hospital, I'm often wearing a KN95 uh, if my suspicion of that they have COVID is lower. And I think if people wear that in the community, I think that offers a tremendous amount of safety. Well, you mentioned that we have a lot of treatments available right now. And for folks who do get infected, what is available? How do they know if the COVID antiviral drugs now authorized for emergency use like Paxlovid, like what your wife took and Malnupiravir, I believe is the name, are right for them? Yeah, it, 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 Paxlovid is a very interesting and really a rapidly emerging story because of this phenomenon of rebound that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. But, but, but let's start with just the drug. So the drug is an antiviral drug. It attacks the, uh, attacks the virus in a mechanism that's different than your immune system, which is good because for people who, um, uh, for example, immunosuppressed people who maybe the vaccines didn't take to the same degree that they take in someone whose immune system is working, Paxlovid should still work fine. The main challenge with Paxlovid is that um, uh, is that there are a number of interactions with other drugs, so you've got to be careful when you get it prescribed. You need to make sure your doctor or the pharmacist who's helping you understand the other drugs you're on, because you may need to change the doses. You may need, even need to stop some of them for five days. It's a five-day treatment course twice a day. Uh, generally benign. The side effect profile is, was very, very mild. About one in 20 people in the tr clinical trials were reported to have a metallic taste in my mouth. My wife had a pretty strong one. I, I hear of it more than what sounds like 5%. But in the main clinical trial that was published in the New England Journal, it, for people that took Paxlovid for five days, the risk of hospitalization was decreased by essentially by about 90%. And so that is a very, very big deal. And to me, if you're at high risk and you're eligible for Paxlovid and don't have a disqualifying drug interaction, that you're a drug that you have to take, uh, I think it's the right thing to do. I also am hopeful, although I cannot prove, but decreasing the amount of virus in your system not only decreases, we know decreases the rate of severe disease and hospitalization and death, but at least it theoretically might decrease the rate of long COVID. And at this point, my biggest worry, if I were to get COVID tomorrow, 
I'm with four shots, four vaccine shots in me with availability of packs of it. I'm not worried that I'm gonna die uh, from a case of COVID. I would have been two years ago, but I still am quite worried about getting long COVID and all that implies. So at least there's some theoretical reason to believe that lowering the amount of virus in your body quickly, which packs of it does, is a good thing to do. So if you're eligible for it and you get COVID, I would recommend you get on it. It seems to, you need to be on it within the first five days of symptoms in order for it to work. You mentioned that it's unlikely we'll see mandates again, or even if we did, a lot of people wanting to follow them and that the threshold should be high for something like that. But you also mentioned concern about the immunocompromised. And if Paxlovid is something that could be very effective for them, should they have a supply at the ready? Is that realistic to think of? Uh, you can imagine that that's, that's, that could be true. And I, I'm actually would not at all be surprised if that is true for certain patients, that patients are at high enough risk that their physicians, this would not be in sort of on-label use in, in terms of it being authorized by the FDA. But the idea that they have some at home ready to go uh, is not an unreasonable thing to do. That said, the trials showed that just starting it in the first five days was all that was necessary. And as we talk about the rebound issue now, there's even some thought of maybe waiting a day or two to give your immune system a chance to do its thing. Might be valuable. Now, obviously, in an immunosuppressed person, that's less relevant. But I, I think as long as if you're immunosuppressed, and to be immunosuppressed, almost certainly you're in medical care, because by, by far the majority of people are immunosuppressed because of medicines they're taking, for example, for a cancer or for a transplant. If you're in medical care, I think having a discussion with your doctor about what would happen if you had COVID and having a game plan for if I get it, can I get a prescription and get started on it within a day or two? I think that's that's good enough as opposed to having it sitting in your medicine cabinet. Well, we actually got a voicemail ahead of the show uh, from someone who attempted to get Paxlovid. Uh, this is a voicemail from DJ Meisner who shared their experience in San Francisco. Here we go. Well, I looked up how to get <laughs> the COVID meds. And uh, there were a few numbers on the city website. I called those, couldn't get through to anybody. And then I called others on other websites, couldn't really get through to anybody. Ended up getting passed back and forth through a number of different hospitals. Uh, I'm uninsured and I don't have a primary care doctor. Uh, so I definitely don't want to go to the ER. And after calling... I think it was 15 people, uh, like 15 different doctors and clinics. Finally, one was able to schedule a meeting with me. I had to go to UCSF and wait outside while they brought me the meds. I don't know if the meds worked. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's hard to tell. Uh, I know what they did do is make it so the only thing I tasted was uh, bile. Uh, I wasn't throwing up anymore, but, like, I only could taste, like, heavy, like, alkali metal. And, yeah, that is my experience trying to get COVID meds. Uh, it was uh, discouragingly difficult, and uh, I'm from here, and I speak the language, and I can use my phone pretty well. Uh, and even with those things, it was a nightmare to get discouragingly difficult, DJ says. Are you hearing of similar problems obtaining the treatment? I don't know if Katie had any difficulty given, you know, her connections, I guess, for lack of a better way of you saying know, I it. Found, but... I, I found throughout this, this thing, you know, the connections are not that helpful, you know, <laughs> finding like early on trying to find test kits 
you know, it was as hard for me as anybody else. And I tweeted it and a lot of very nice people said, I'll bring some to your house. I mean, <laughs> this entire thing has been, you know, has demonstrated the flaws in the healthcare system and, and how difficult it is to navigate. I'm glad that UCSF was able to help, but I could just hear the frustration in his, in his voice. Yeah, when she, uh, she has a primary care doctor at UCSF uh, who was uh, very responsive and got a prescription right away. But then when we went to Walgreens to try to get it, which our usual pharmacy, they said, we don't have any. And it turned out like most of the Walgreens in the city didn't, but the CVSs had a ton. So, you know, go figure. And so ended up getting it from them. There are, uh, the Biden administration has set up or facilitated a fair number of these these things called uh, test and treat uh, uh, centers where you can go get your COVID test and get Paxlovid prescribed that day. Um, there are a couple in the Bay Area the last time I checked, and that's sort of where I would go to, I think there's a website, covid.gov, that, that if you go onto it, sort of describes where you can get Paxlovid. And obviously, if it says it on the website, there's no guarantee it will be true. But yeah, I mean, the experience has been quite frustrating for lots of people. I it's, it has gotten better because supply has gotten better. You know, two or three months ago, there just wasn't enough of this medicine around and people were really scrambling to find it. There is enough around. It's just sometimes hard to find it. Well, Roberto writes, I'm home on the third day after testing positive. I had a doctor's consultation via phone yesterday and was told that there are potential downsides to Paxlovid, including rebound rebound COVID. I'm vaxxed with one booster, 50 years old and generally healthy, though I occasionally smoke. Should I try to get Paxlovid or avoid it if I'm not high risk? God, keeping in mind also that window that you talked about, Dr. Walker. But uh, Roberto, in terms of answering his question, as well as he also brings up this rebound, so it's probably a good time to start talking about that as well. Yeah, I, it's it, like a lot of things in COVID, it's a little bit of a judgment call. There's no, a lot of things are, you know, not bright lines that say this is absolutely the right thing to do or not. Uh, they, they sort of relate to overall risk. The fact that he's had, he's 50 and generally healthy, his risk of a bad outcome is quite low. And the, and the fact, particularly the fact that he's had three shots, um, that he's had two vaccinations and a booster, uh, has, has, that's the most important thing he could have done to protect him. The additional benefit of Paxlovid in that his risk of hospitalization is very low is relatively low. Even if it's a 90% decrease in the rate of hospitalization, if that rate starts out being very low, you know, he a lot of people in his situation would be taking Paxlovid for no real benefit because their risk of hospitalization was low in the first place. So I think it's a little bit of a judgment call whether to take it. Now let's talk about the rebound for a second because I think that is influencing people's decisions. Uh, early on in the clinical trials of Paxlovid, 2% of people had this phenomenon now known as rebound. And what that means is they, they, they took the medicine, they felt better, uh, they had been testing positive with an antigen test, a home test. Uh, it was positive and then eventually turned negative. On average, day seven or eight, it'll turn negative. And so they feel like they're done. And then lo and behold, on day 10 or 11 or 12, they start feeling crummy again and they test again and now they're positive. So the rebound is both the recurrence of symptoms and the recurrence of test positivity. And the po test positivity base, and I'm not talking about a PCR, which can stay positive for weeks. It's, it's, it's gonna find like one particle of virus in you. I'm talking about the rapid test, which really is a pretty good metric of whether you're infectious. And so that was 2% of people in the clinical trial. I'm hearing about it all the time. You probably are as well. Now, I'm, I was trying to figure out, is that just an amplification phenomenon of social media? 
But I polled the people who follow me on Twitter yesterday and asked them, if have you had COVID, taken packs of it? And if, you, if so, did you have rebound? And absolutely with a massive caveat about the, 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 the uh, utility of online polls and all of the biases and potential bots and all that stuff. But 46% of people said yes, 54% of people said no. Even if that's wrong by a factor of three and it's only 10 or 15%, it's much more common than we anticipated. And I don't think we understand it very well. Now, what we are seeing in the people I know who've had rebound, that rebounds tend to be mild. They tend to be self-limited. They last five to seven days. Uh, if, you're, if your rapid test goes from negative to positive, you should assume you are infectious again. We talk a little about what you should do, and it's, it's kind of tricky, but um, uh, I, it's not recommended you take another course of Paxlovid. Does that mean that you, and I'm hearing people say, you know, my doctor told me I shouldn't take Paxlovid because of rebound. I don't believe that. I think the benefits of Paxlovid are still so strong for particularly for people at high risk, which is not really Roberto, that if I was at high risk, I definitely would take it. But you have to have your eyes open and, uh, to the possibility of rebound. And because of that possibility, if you turn negative, I think particularly if you've now developed new symptoms, you should test yourself again. If you're positive, assume you're infectious and again, begin isolation. I wouldn't do anything else because at least as far as we know now, you're gonna have a short course of positivity, maybe a short and generally milder course of, of clinical symptoms than you had the first time through. Uh, but to me, it doesn't change the overall benefit of Paxlovid, but it clearly is an area that's just crying out for research. We don't even know legitimately what percentage of people get it. I, I would not, certainly wouldn't trust my online poll as being definitive. We're talking about what's available to handle and treat a COVID infection these days and taking your COVID questions with Dr. Bob Wachter, UCSF professor and chair of the Department of Medicine. And you can join the conversation. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or give a call now at 866-733-6786. Let me go to Lisa in San Francisco. Hi, Lisa. Good morning, and thank you for this program. Dr. Wachter, I am sorry to learn of your wife, and I hope she has a strong recovery. My question to you is, um, my neighborhood group is hosting a community fair, an outdoor community fair, this Saturday, the 21st, will be in the shadow of UCSF campus. And we are partnering with the city, Department of Health, and Walgreens to do a pop-up vaccination site. In addition to, um, we'll have elder services, family uh, events, music, refreshments, and such. During this surge, um, we will certainly be encouraging everyone to mask. Uh, is, there, is there any advice uh, that you could give me or people who will be attending or staffing this event? Well, first, first of all, thank you for doing that. That's very, very nice of you to do. Um, I treat outdoors as being uh, uh, almost night and day different than than indoors. It's not to say there is zero risk of outdoor events. If, if you know the new infect, the new variants of Omicron are so infectious that you cannot say for certain that, that there, there's no chance of an infection passing outdoors. 
but it's very, very low and, and orders of magnitude lower than indoors. So in general, as I said, I'm not comfortable eating in an indoor restaurant at this point. I'm perfectly comfortable eating in an outdoor setting, and I did last night, and even in, in recognizing that we've got a decent amount of a decent surge right now. Um, in a windless day with people really, really close to one another, then I might be a little worried. I've lived in San Francisco 35 years. I don't remember a windless day. So I'm not particularly worried about it. I think for someone that wants to wear a mask and is particularly vulnerable uh, and particularly who has not been vaccinated or an older person who's not been vaccinated or, or a child who has not been vaccinated or immunosuppressed, then it's reasonable to wear a mask. But if, if we were holding an outdoor event or a picnic, I would not insist on masking at this point unless, you know, but I would, I think one of the key things here is, is, you know, creating a space where people feel comfortable doing what they feel they should do for themselves. So certainly, you know, if someone wants to wear a mask, it's a reasonable thing to do, but I'm perfectly comfortable with outdoor events uh, without masks. Well, um, we got this question from a caller who could not stay on, a caller from Santa Maria who was wondering if he should deliberately try to contract COVID, quarantine and benefit from any immunity that infection could give. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a natural question. I think the answer is very much no. And the reason is that, it, and it kind of depends on the person's vaccine and booster status. You know, you can get your immune system primed to fight COVID through either a vaccine, which we know now is perfectly safe with hundreds of millions of people vaccinated and, 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 the, and the rate of severe uh, problems from vaccination being essentially zero, or you can do it from an infection where a million people have died. And so to me, it's not even a close call that you want to do it through vaccination. And if you are fully vaccinated, which by which I now mean vaccinated and boosted, the chances you're going to have a severe uh, outcome, hospitalization or death, is is almost negligible at this point. And so I think that getting trying to get it is a bad call. And it's also, as we see more and more new variants, they are more and more immune evasive. And so there's no guarantee, for example, if you had Omicron in January, the, the, the benefit you have from that infection has is probably relatively limited today against the variants that we're seeing today. So in general, the answer is no, that generally you wanna keep yourself safe through being immune through vaccination rather than through infection. We're talking with Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, and with you, our listeners, 866-733-6786, the number to call. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. He'll take more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're taking your COVID questions with Dr. Bob Walker, who is at the UC San Francisco Medical School, chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. And you can join us at 866-733-6786. Let me go straight to caller Michael in Santa Barbara. Hi, Michael. Hello. Um, my question is, if a person contracts the virus, but it is before they test or show symptoms, can they still pass the virus on to someone else? Can they transmit before they test positive, Dr. Walker? The the rapid test is uh, is a pretty accurate measure of how infectious you are. And so whereas the PCR is very sensitive and will turn positive well before you have enough virus in your mouth and nose to be infectious. That said, you know, there certainly have been cases where people tested positive but had already infected people the day before. So um, it's not a perfect it's not a perfect test. It is a it is a very good test of infectiousness. But if you have symptoms of covid um, uh, at this point, while you're waiting for testing or even if you test negative um, the first day, I still think it's prudent to consider yourself potentially infectious. If you have negative tests two days in a row, then the probability that you are you have COVID has gone down quite a bit, and the probability you're infectious after 24 hours of negative testing has gone down uh, substantially. But yeah, the, it is possible to transmit before your negative before your rapid test turns positive. Michael, thanks for the call. Let me go next to Phyllis in Menlo Park. Hi, Phyllis. Hi. Go right ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to know about us long haulers. First of all, I'm a senior citizen, and I have bad arthritis. And I had an immediate reaction to a little bit to the first uh, vaccine, but the second vaccine, within three days, I had um, aching all over and... Um, uh, anyway, it definitely affected me, and I and I've tested neg- negative three, four times. I you know I get tested every month, but I still have all those symptoms of aching all over and brain fog and exhaustion. And the doctor just you know they act like because I'm a senior. Uh, well, what do you expect? You know. Anyway, is there any treatment? All I do is I take a AP codeine. Thank God for my. Um, my doctor gives it to me for my bad arthritis. Is there what treatment is there for us long haulers? Mm-hmm. And nobody talks about the people, those of us that had a big reaction. And I met other people to the to the um, vaccine. Phyllis, thank you, Doctor Walker. Yeah, well, let me sort of disentangle that into a couple of pieces. One is. That's very, very unusual. Certainly a lot of people have a reaction to the vaccine and feel achy for a few days. It, it, in, in the in long-term studies now of people who've been vaccinated, uh, a protracted symptoms after vaccination and, and, and proven to be caused by vaccination are really, really unusual. So 
I'm not sure whether that is, it, 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 it sounds like it feels like it happened right after the vaccine, so I don't dispute that. But often, you know, if you take, if you, if you vaccinate 200 million people as we have in the United States, uh, some people will start getting symptomatic and it may have nothing to do with the vaccines. You know, people have all sorts of things begin to happen. So I'm not sure it's from the vaccine, although uh, if it is, I don't, we don't have any, I'd be treating the arthritis the way the, the arthritis is normally treated. There's no specific treatment for it. And personally, I still think it's safer for her to get a booster if she hasn't gotten one, uh, although I recognize that she may very well not want to do that. When people talk about being a long hauler or having long COVID, they're generally talking about a long-term effect from their infection, not from the vaccine. And people ask me about that periodically. Well, I'm worried about long-term effects from the vaccine. Uh, I am, I'm 100 times more worried about long-term effects from COVID, which are clearly proven uh, affect tens of millions of people, and I think are a pretty big deal. And so here's what we know about long COVID. Uh, a, a fair number of people, percentage could be somewhere anywhere between 10 and 30 or 40 percent, will continue to have symptoms uh, more than a month or two after their acute infection. The symptoms can be fatigue, brain fog, aching, lots and lots of different things. Um, the rate of that is decreased substantially through vaccination, but not brought down to zero. So maybe five or 10% chance of continued symptoms uh, with long COVID. We don't understand exactly what is going on with long COVID, whether there's still some virus in your system or it's your immune system that has reacted to the initial infection and is continuing to percolate. And that's important to figure out as we try to sort out what the best treatment might be. There's anecdotal evidence that treating people with antivirals later might help, although it's not been absolutely proven. A lot of research going on at a lot of places, including UCSF, on all of this. The thing I worry about just as much as long-term symptoms is in the last two months, there have been several studies that have looked at the long-term, and by that I mean more than a year, outcomes of people who've had COVID. And it looks like the rates of things like heart attacks, diabetes, and strokes are higher in people who've had COVID than people who haven't. A lot to be learned there. We don't understand what's going on there. We don't understand how to treat this. But as I said before, to me at this point, having had two boosters and vaccinations and Paxlovid, I don't worry about a severe case of COVID leading to hospitalization and death very much. I do worry about the fact that I might have fatigue or brain fog six months from now, and that having a case of COVID might increase the risk of, of a heart attack or diabetes down the road. And the main reason I'm still very careful about trying not to get it, as hard as that is these days, is that those are the things I worry about most of all. A lot of research going into it to try to figure out what it's about and whether there are any treatments that might help. Well, Iris writes, not everyone can be vaccinated and not everyone can wear a mask. Not everyone can keep themselves safe. How can we justify leaving behind those populations and putting them at serious risk by focusing so heavily on personal responsibility and personal protection. I find the justifications for this approach inherently ableist and problematic. Kathleen writes, kids under five are being left out of this conversation. When we keep masks optional, it's more dangerous for them. Speaking of kids, Dr. Walker, final approval from the CDC of Pfizer's booster for ages 5 to 11 is supposedly imminent since the FDA's approval was, was Tuesday. In terms of... Uh, news for parents and caregivers of kids under five, since they're still unvaccinated, as Kathleen points out. Are you hearing anything on the horizon there? What's your prediction there? Nothing more than what the, the federal government's been saying and said it yesterday at the press conference with uh, 
Dr. John, Dr. Walensky, and Dr. Fauci that, you know, they're, the, 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 the FDA is reviewing all the materials as quickly as they can. They know the urgency of this. They're trying to get it right. With the kids, you do have to be very careful because if you get it wrong, that's a very big deal. You need to, they, you know, people ask, why didn't they get it approved? You know, when, when the adults got approved, you see, you have to really calibrate the dose for the kids to get it right. If you're giving too high a dose, then too many kids will have fevers and other side effects. If you give too low a dose, it doesn't work. And that's kind of the predicament they find themselves in. I think the betting is there will be an approval of, of something for kids less than five within a month or two. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it's sort of in the process now, and I don't have any inside information on it. Well, this listener writes, I'd appreciate advice on who can tell my daughter when her 11-year-old son should receive the booster after he recently contracted COVID-19 in mid-April. Well, if, if I tend to treat uh, an infection, if you do get an infection, as the equivalent of a booster. That's not precisely right, but I think it's it's good enough, uh, by which I mean that the infection, as I said before, I'd rather get a booster than an infection. But if you did get an infection, it is stimulating your immune system. And I sort of, uh, I, I go by the kind of governing assumption that it gives you a level of protection that's not dissimilar to a booster that's going to last for several months. So if I if I had a kid or an adult who got who had two two vaccine shots, then got an infection in April, I'd be waiting till June or July to think about a booster at that point. Let me go to caller Sue. Hi Sue, join us. Hi Sue, are you there? Hello. Yeah, go right ahead. I am. Hey uh, Bob, this is Sue Troopin. How are you? Hi, I'm Sue. calling nice about. Hi dear. I'm calling about my 26-year-old grandson who got Johnson & Johnson and then Moderna. He's leaving for Europe. It's been, you know, five or six months since he got the last one. He cannot get boosted um, as a 26-year-old. But is, do you think Johnson & Johnson plus Moderna is going to do it? Or should I... Well, and Sunoi you know, worked together in the old days, and to hear that she's got a 26-year-old grandson is, is depressing to me. But... Um, Nice to hear from you. The I think the answer, as soon as we don't know, um, that you know that that J and J, which was considered in the early days a one-shot vaccine, and therefore sort of that your one J and J was the equivalent of two Moderna's or two Pfizer's. At this point, I think it's a little bit up in the air. Um, if you could get a second uh, a second Moderna or Pfizer, I would probably do it. I don't remember what the eligibility is. It sounds like you're being told that that, that your grandson is not eligible for another shot um, in that. But I, I'm now treating you know a prior J&J as really a single shot in what probably should have been a two-shot regimen. And also now we've learned about some significant side effects from J&J. It's really no longer recommended. And so uh, if it were my kid, I mean, a 26-year-old who's had two shots is probably relatively safe. But to be on the safe side, if you can access another mRNA vaccine, either Moderna or Pfizer, I would probably try to do that. Patricia writes, I contracted COVID for the first time around the same time as your wife. Fortunately, I was not very ill. How careful do I need to be now and for how long? This has been a question that I've heard from a lot of people who are recently affected. Like, can I go out into the world basically after 10 days just as... I was and, and feeling very comfortable with my ability not to infect other people and not to get reinfected. Yeah. So let's sort of break that down quickly in terms of the rebound risk and then the general risk of what you're like after an infection. 
The rebound risk, I mean, if it's anything like what the poll showed today, and I wouldn't trust the poll completely, but it's clearly more than 2% risk of a rebound, that, that, that if, you've, you know, if you had COVID a week or two ago and now you're testing negative, I would still be a little bit careful for another week. I don't know that I would test every day, although my wife is. I, I would very least, if I had any symptoms at all, start testing. And if I was going to be around anyone vulnerable, I continue to wear a mask. Uh, and 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 be quite careful for until I was about two two and a half weeks out from my infection. Now, once you're past, and all because of this possibility of 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 rebound. Once you're past that point, now you're in a boat where you have hybrid immunity. If you've gotten, let's say, three vaccine shots, and now an infection, you're really you have pretty good superpowers of immunity, and you are in better shape than someone who's just gotten vaccinated. How long that lasts? is sort of hard to know. Again, I tend to think of it as a two to three month phenomenon, particularly since each new variant seems to be more evasive of prior from prior infection. So I think for the for the next month or two, you're you're safer than you would have been prior to your infection. Whether that means you're comfortable eating indoors, for example, or not wearing a mask indoors, it's sort of dealer's choice. But if you're otherwise low risk of a bad outcome uh, by virtue of not being particularly old and not having multiple medical conditions, then I think you know, you're in a position where your chances of getting reinfected are very low, at least for a couple of months. We're talking with Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It, it feels like people are just really wanting to be done with the pandemic, um, Dr. Walker, but I, I linger a bit on the statistic of a million deaths due to COVID that we surpassed this week and probably did earlier, but of course, the numbers that we have are reported deaths. And and when I think about it for a moment, because we, we tend to become inured to the toll, I think, but when I think of March 2020, I never thought we would be at a million deaths or 90,000, more than 90,000 in California. And I guess I don't really have a question around that, but do you ever have those moments when, when you really, like, what does that make you think of in terms of that kind of a toll? Yeah, I think we all have to work on doing something, you know, that, 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 that the human brain does, which is at some point it gets to a point where it almost can't absorb the, the, the depths of the tragedy. And so it begins to get inured. And in some ways, that's an adaptive response and allows us to kind of live our lives. And in other ways, it's, it's, it's sort of profoundly uh, troubling uh, to, to, you know, to get your arms around a million deaths and sort of push yourself to say each one was a, a human and had a family and friends and lives and was doing, you know, living their life. It's a hard thing to do. But I, periodically, that's what I try to do. I try to sort of push myself to remember that. Well, even just earlier when you were saying, forgive me, Dr. Walker, that if we had done better as a nation, that toll would be more 250,000, which is still incredibly tragic. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's one of the, I guess, you know, in terms of the scale, one of the things I use is the city of San Francisco, which seems pretty big, is about 850,000 people. So this is larger than everyone in San Francisco having passed away. And yeah, I mean, it adds to the tragedy, the idea that many of the deaths and probably the majority of the deaths were preventable if, if we and as a society had reacted in a certain way, if, if there hadn't been quite so much pushback against vaccinations and masking, recognizing 
that there was always going to be challenges with that and struggles when you're asking people to do something. We have this particular libertarian bent in the United States and, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? But in this case, it served us very, very poorly. And I think in the Bay Area, there was less of that. And I think we should feel proud of and good about the fact that a lot of lives were saved because people took the, the, the pandemic seriously, the science seriously, and mostly did the right thing. So what what do you see in the next, maybe for the end of this year, what do you see playing out? Is it is it more sort of surges and just us keeping our fingers crossed that the, the new variant, the next variant isn't going to be worse than the than the last? Um, and what do you what do you ask us to do? Because there will certainly be more deaths. Yeah, I mean, I, I the fact that everyone is exhausted and wants to move on is completely normal and rational. Uh, but the virus doesn't care. And and uh, there's nothing that I can see, this is too depressing almost to say, there's nothing I can see on the horizon that changes the fundamental dynamics of where we are now, that there's still a lot of virus around, that is more and more people to choose to let their guard down, that there will be more and more infections. The, the bit of happy news now is that the ratio between infections and deaths is much different than it was two years ago. So we're not seeing the impact on hospitalizations and ICU stays and deaths that we once saw. But I don't see anything in the horizon that uh, that will sort of make this all go away. I think we're going to be stuck in a version of where we are now. And the best you can do is be as vaccinated and boosted as possible. And to decide on what level of caution you're comfortable with. I still am trying to be careful. I don't believe that it's absolutely inevitable that we're all going to get it. And I'd like to push it off as far as possible. If it's around for 10 years, then yes, it is inevitable. We'll all get it at some point. But uh, I'd like to try to avoid it. And, and even if you've had it once before, a year ago, you know, I think you should be trying to avoid getting it again. That doesn't mean not living life or traveling or doing the things you want to do. But it does mean when you're in the store asking yourself, is it really important that I don't have a mask on here? Because I really want to chat with the person next to me online. Uh, if I'm going out to dinner, could I go outside rather than inside to take as few risks as you need to take while trying to enjoy and live your life to the extent possible? I think that's this very strange predicament that we all find ourselves in. And I don't see anything about the next six to 12 months that's going to fundamentally change that. Well, we just have about 30 seconds, but if, if there was a frame that you used to remind us of our responsibility to each other, I'd love to hear it. Well, I do think that, you know, we have to recognize, and COVID has, has, has made very clear that, that, that we are all in this together, and this is not just all about individual choice, but it is about community risk. And I, it, again, I'm something I'm very proud of in the Bay Area, because I think people mostly live their lives that way. Well, Dr. Walter, thank you again. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you for having me. Dr. Robert Wachter, Professor and Chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your experiences and your questions. And my thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.